Welcome back to another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson. It, it's been a while since we put out our last podcast, but I thought I would share with you this little talk I recently gave at a conference on my namesake, Robert Louis Stevenson. Oh yes, and I've also recently adapted the episodes of Series 3 of these podcasts on Stevenson's fables into a book called Aesop in the Fog, which is available at thelamplightpress.com slash Aesop. Don't forget the as part of the address. The Lamplight Press, or one word, thelamplightpress.com slash A-E-S-O-P. And so, when speaking at the Stevenson Conference in Bordeaux, I felt I had to say something about the fables. The conference focused on the theme of Stevenson and pleasure. See how I managed to fit the fables into that theme. Here's the talk. Let's start off like this. Sir, said the first lieutenant, bursting into the captain's cabin, the ship is going down. Very well, Mr. Spoker, said the captain, but that is no reason for going about half-shaved. Exercise your mind a moment, Mr. Spoker, and you'll see that to the philosophic eye there is nothing new in our position. The ship, if she is to go down at all, may be said to have been going down since she was launched. She is settling fast, said the first lieutenant as he returned from shaving. Fast, Mr. Spoker, asked the captain. The expression is a strange one, for, for time, if you will think of it, is only relative. Sir, said the lieutenant, I think it's scarcely worth while to embark on such a discussion when we shall all be in Davy Jones's locker in ten minutes. By parity of reasoning, returned the captain gently, it would never be worth while to begin any inquiry of importance. The odds are always overwhelming that we must die before we shall have brought it to an end. You have not considered, Mr. Spoker, the situation of man, said the captain, smiling and shaking his head. I'm much more engaged in considering the position of the ship, said Mr. Spoker. Spoken like a good officer, replied the captain, laying his hand on the lieutenant's shoulder. On deck, they found the men had broken into the spirit room and were fast getting drunk. My men, said the captain, there's no sense in this. The ship is going down, you'll tell me, in ten minutes. Well, and what then? To the philosophic eye, there is nothing new in our position. All our lives long we may have been about to break a blood vessel or to be struck by lightning, not merely in ten minutes, but in ten seconds. And, and that has not prevented us from eating dinner, no, nor from putting money in the savings bank. I assure you, with my hand on my heart, I fail to comprehend your attitude. The men were already too far gone to pay much heed. This is a very painful sight, Mr. Spoker, said the captain. And yet to the philosophic eye, or whatever it is, replied the first lieutenant, they may be said to have been getting drunk since they came aboard. I do not know if you always follow my thought, Mr. Spoker, returned the captain gently, but let us proceed. In the powder magazine they found an old salt smoking his pipe. Good God, cried the captain, what are you about? Well, sir, said the old salt apologetically, they told me as she were going down. And suppose she were, said the captain, to the philosophic eye, there would be nothing new in our position. 
Life, my old shipmate, life at any moment and in any view is as dangerous as a sinking ship, and yet it is man's handsome fashion to carry umbrellas, to wear india-rubber overshoes, to begin vast works, and to conduct himself in every way as if he might hope to be eternal. And for my own poor part I should despise the man who, even on board a sinking ship, should omit to take a pill or to wind up his watch. That, my friend, would not be the human attitude. I beg pardon, sir, said Mr. Spoker, but what is precisely the difference between shaving in a sinking ship and smoking in a powder magazine? Or doing anything at all in any conceivable circumstances, cried the captain. Perfectly conclusive. Give me a cigar. Two minutes afterwards, the ship blew up with a glorious detonation. That was, of course, Stevenson's fable, The Sinking Ship. What does it say to us about pleasure? I suppose, specifically, pleasure in a moment of crisis. But then Stevenson would remind us that every moment is a moment of crisis, a point that became the central theme of his 1877 essay, East Triplex. Pleasure, for Stevenson, we might say, was always to be seen in the context of a crisis. The contrast adds to the pleasure. That cigar the captain in the fable is smoking in his final moments undoubtedly, undoubtedly was the most pleasant cigar he'd ever smoked. In fact, smoking often takes on the value of a symbol for Stevenson for moments when we let go of the pains and problems of life and relax in pleasure. As we see, for instance, in the fable The Persons of the Tale, when, after the thirty-second chapter of Treasure Island, two of the puppets strolled out to have a pipe before business should begin again. Ah, Silver, grunted Captain Smollett, you're in a bad way, Silver. And indeed he is. Chapter 32 ended as the remnants of the pirate crew came to the spot where Silver had told them the treasure was buried, but discovered the seven hundred thousand pounds were gone. <laughs> What else do you do in such a predicament but step off stage for a relaxing pipe and a little philosophical discussion about morality, art, and the author behind it all? It's a little different for the traveller in the two matches, tired and hungry, dying for a smoke. His first match fails to light, and there's only one match left, and that's certain to miss fire, he laments. His mind then conjures up a series of disasters that might happen if a spark from his pipe should set the woods ablaze. I see this pleasant forest burned for days, and the cattle roasted, and the springs dried up, and the farmer ruined, and his children cast upon the world. What a world hangs upon this moment! With that he struck the match, and it missed fire. Thank God, said the traveller, and put his pipe in his pocket. He did not set the world on fire, but then again he missed his moment of pleasure. Too much abstract thinking, we see over and over in the fables, leaves us disengaged with life and poorer for it. Better, as the ship's captain realised, better to forget about the philosophic eye and enjoy the moment. Well, so much for the pleasure of smoking. And there aren't many other examples of pleasure in the fables, I'm afraid. These little stories focus on absurdity and disillusion, refusing easy answers, 
leaving us, as Stevenson said in his early review of Lord Lytton's Fables and Song, leaving the reader to resolve for himself the vague, troublesome, and not yet definitely moral sentiment. Earlier fable traditions offered us a tenderness of rough truths and happy endings, so the fabulist might be able to assure his auditors, as we have often to assure tearful children on the like occasions, that they may dry their eyes, for none of it was true. We, Stevenson says, have moved on from that kind of easy, facile, sentimental fable. In the complex 19th century world, a man cannot deal playfully with truths that are a matter of bitter concern to him in his life. So perhaps it would be more appropriate to read a paper on the fables at a conference on the agonies of life rather than this one on pleasure. Or maybe not. In 1874, the young Stevenson could proclaim that we no longer deal playfully with the serious ideas the fables address. And yet it is precisely his knack of playing with these ideas that produces the greatest pleasure in the fables. Our pleasure, as we read them, play with them, are played upon by them. We have as a warning for how not to read these pieces the fable of the reader, who, declaring that he'd never read such an impious book, and because the book challenged him with new ideas he did not want to entertain, throws the book into the fire. No playfulness in this character, but let's take a look at the playfulness in the telling. We're given a drama, exclusively dialogue, except for the action in the first line of throwing the book on the floor, and in the last line, throwing it into the fire. I never read such an impious book, says the unidentified reader to begin with, leaving us guessing what is going on here. Is the reader just talking to himself or herself, as we often do in exasperation? What then can come next? What comes next is unexpected, throwing us, for one thing, into a kind of magic realism. The book speaks up, addresses the reader. You need not hurt me. You'll only get less for me secondhand, and I did not write myself. The reader canny soul, agrees with this. His quarrel is with the author, not the book. The reader confesses that he bought the book because he thought the author such a cheerful writer. The book replies that he finds the author cheerful, cheerful in a different way, no doubt, just as these fables are, after all, cheerful in a way we might not usually apply that word. By this point in the drama, we may be aware that we have slipped without realizing it into accepting that a book can speak just like a human being. This is not exactly a beast fable where animals talk like people. It's weirder than that. The reader defends his dismissal of the writer by saying he must be differently made from me. Before we can realize the importance of this rejection, we're shifted into another unexpected move. Let me tell you a fable, the book says, giving us a fable within a fable. The book does not get very far with his fable. The reader, as we might expect, interrupts as soon as he thinks he sees where it is going. There were two men wrecked upon a desert island. One of them made believe he was at home. The other admitted, Oh, I know you're a kind of fable, said the reader. They both died. Well, so they did, said the book. No doubt of that. 
and everyone else. That is true, said the reader. Push it a little further for this once. And when they were all dead, well, they were in God's hands, the same as before, said the book. Not much to boast of, by your account, cried the reader. This is puzzling, and we are required now, if we are serious readers, to play with this remark. Why does the reader dismiss the idea that both were in God's hands the same as before? Because this reader cannot accept that two opposing views can both rest in God's hands. This kind of person, the kind who judges books as being impious, sees anyone who has a different view of the world as differently made, and therefore an other. And since by definition I am right and I will rest in God's hands, anyone different must be wrong and must end up in hell. <laughs> God accepts only people like me. A God who accepts both proponents of differing views is not much to boast of. Such a God does not boost my poor ego. The book has a prompt reply to such a closed-minded, ungenerous way of seeing things. Who is impious now, says the book, directing us, if we're still interested in reading further and have not thrown the fables onto the floor, directing us to consider in this indirect way that the kind of sanctimonious piety of the reader is, in the end, ultimately impious, denying God any loving, generous qualities. And the reader put the book on the fire. End of story. There's no discussion, just a power play at the end, dismissing all opposition. <laughs> Does this remind us of the legend of Stevenson's petulantly throwing the first draft of Jekyll and Hyde into the fire when his wife Fanny did not like it? Or more significantly, does it remind us of the churches condemning heretics to be burnt at the stake? The story ends abruptly with, like many of the fables, a violent action. But it continues to reverberate for us in many ways. And here is the great pleasure. But wait, <laughs> the fable's not finished. It is one of the handful of fables with the conventional moral at the end, though not all that conventional when we come down to it. The coward crouches from the rod and loathes the iron face of God. Stevenson's not going to give us an easy, much less a consoling application at the end. He's not going to assure us, like the older fabulists he spoke of in his Lytton review, he's not going to assure us, as we have often to assure tearful children on the like occasions, that they may dry their eyes, for none of it was true. No, this is true. Stevenson's moral couplet needs us to play with it to see what it is saying. The coward crouches from the rod. Is the chief fault of the reader that he is a coward? Is the book, or the author perhaps, or the fable within the fable, the rod that will chastise the reader and lead him out of his narrow view? The coward loathes the iron face of God. God, who gently leads the reader into new views, remember the gentle, reasonable tone in which the book speaks, God becomes an enemy to this kind of reader, closed to anything new. God with an iron face, whose generosity the coward loathes. 
Well, this kind of discussion takes us away from the actual story too heavy on the philosophic eye. But we can return to the story itself and read it again, savoring the pleasure of our engagement. And this, I propose, is the chief pleasure of the fables. How much is packed into so little, how they play with our expectations and seduce us into seeing things in new ways. We mustn't forget also the pleasure we feel from the moral vision, the inconclusive endings, the absence of any smug, pietistic moralizing, no right answers, only engagement. Very satisfying for those of us who have moved beyond the narrow reading habits of that reader in the fable. I don't have time to speak about the pleasure in the language Stevenson uses in the fables, but that is a pleasure anyone reading the pieces can quickly appreciate. I must confine myself to these brief comments, hoping they can play their part in building up the associations of Stevenson and pleasure that we are developing in our conference together.